0: You're listening to a special edition of the Unseen Podcast for Queen's Hall. In this podcast, I'm delighted to introduce you to John Parker. John is the artist who has put together the Available Light exhibition that is coming to Queen's Hall, opening on the 4th of February. Hello, John.
1: Hello, Dominic. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Yeah, yeah.
1: How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. My first podcast, so interested excited apprehensive
0: don't worry about it i'm always a bit nervous when i get started and then warm up as i go along what the audience doesn't get to hear is all the mistakes i make that i will edit out (laughs) before (laughs) before it goes public Uh, unless they're really funny and then sometimes i leave them in so john can you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: yeah i live in Hexham, which as you know i'm sure you know um in a well-known property agency's annual survey has a couple of times come out as the happiest place to live in in the UK and one of the reasons I guess is we've got all sorts of facilities in the town including the Queen's Hall mm-hmm. and um, I'm a sort of regular patron of the Queen's Hall either sitting in the seats or wandering around looking at exhibitions. I'd been retired for several years and I'd got myself a um, onto a photo box on the web and produced a couple of albums purely for myself that were of photos I'd taken years and years ago, 40 years ago and more, at rock gigs, because music is one of my big passions. And um, around 1979, 80, I had some sort of vague aspiration of becoming a rock photographer. So... I'd been, as a teenager, getting into music. I'd regularly read New Musical Express, Sounds, um, Melody Maker, whatever. And I was doing that to get the record reviews, the concert reviews, the news from the wacky world of rock music. And I got very interested in the photos that you had in in the papers and started to find that I was looking more at the photos than at the content. And I was a, a dabbler with photography, really. I, I think I had a um, a Boots Bayeret 35mm camera, which was the cheap and cheerful 35 mil camera that uh, Boots sold. And uh, I took holiday photos and things with that, but I wasn't really that bothered. And I think partly because of... Um, My interest in the rock photography I saw from people like Penny Smith or Jill Furmanovsky or Chalky Davis or Adrian Boot or Kevin Cummins in NME and so on. I kind of thought, I'd like to do that. So I went out and got myself a practica through lens, single lens reflex camera and started playing around with that. And I think in early 1979, I'd got tickets to see the average white band at Sheffield City Hall and um, lived in Nottingham but would travel around for gigs. So I sort of surreptitiously took my camera and my reasonably cheap or very cheap, cheapest I could find, long lens along to the gig and surreptitiously took a few photos and concentrated on getting things in focus and not having camera shake. I'd read up a bit on the whole subject of available light photography using whatever light you've got. Uh, No studio lighting, no flash allowed, so you're dealing with whatever the light show is. And so I sort of worked out I needed to buy a fast film and use that, and I got some results back, and they were all very static, but I was quite pleased. So I... um, I got in touch with the editor of a, a fanzine called Way Ahead, which was based in Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, on the principle of shy burns, getting his sweeties and just feeling excessively confident at that sort of age, I got in touch with the, the editor and said, hello, I'm trying to start doing rock photography. I've got a few... Pictures you might like to see so you know could we talk about it so dave brett the the editor of way ahead said yeah yeah come meet me in my local pub we sat there in the pub had a couple of pints chatted about music he looked at my photos and said well we've got a regular photographer for the magazine but if mark doesn't want the photo passes for gigs you know um he get he'll get first choice but you can give us some material, you know, try it. And he said, what are you what are you interested in seeing? So I kind of said, well, I've got tickets for Van Morrison over at Derby Assembly Rooms in a few weeks, a couple of weeks. And a couple of weeks after that, I've got tickets for Graham Parker and The Rumour. And he said, oh, I'll sort you out photo passes. So the photo passes came along. And I wanted to see Van Morrison for years, to be honest. I mean, he was pile my list of musicians I liked, and I, I had mm. lots of his albums, and I still do, and I still listen to Man the Man. You know, he's a bit of a, a musical hero from the 70s for me. And um, I just kind of thought, well, oh, I, I could be sitting in, you know, Rose Z in Derby <laughs> Assembly Rooms. Instead of that, I found myself down the front with a, a film camera, and... Um, after the gig, I went in the bar with friends I'd gone to the gig with and we were having, I was having a pint afterwards and thinking I hope some of these come out and sort of got a tap on the shoulder and it was a guy called John Altman who was playing saxophone in Van the Man's Band. And he said, oh, I see you were taking photos there. And of course, because it's the first time I'd officially done it, I was a bit taken aback, and I said, oh, no, I've I've got a photo pass here, I'm allowed. (laughs) He said, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. He said, but we were talking about it, we haven't had anybody taking photos much on this tour, and me and other members of the band had liked some pictures if you got some, could we sort something out? I said, oh, sure we could. He said, well, come downstairs to the dressing room and and have a beer. It's kind of, all right friends I'd gone with was like bye I'm going down the dressing room <laughs> and there I found myself a bit later standing next to Katie Kissoon and Anna Peacock the um, the backing singers and chatting on to John Altman who has had a fabulous career in the music industry and done Oscar winning scores for films and things since and we had a chat and a beer and it was all very amicable and stuff and I sent them a bunch of photos. Fortunately they came out recently, <laughs> that set of prints. And I got a really nice letter back with um saying, you know, other members of the band had liked some can you send some more prints, preferably bigger ones and blah blah. So I did. And then week two later a jiffy pack appeared through my letterbox with a C ninety cassette in, taken from the mixing desk at Van Morrison's Dublin gig on that tour. So, mm. hey, this is good. I get to go drinking yeah. with the band afterwards, which didn't happen a lot subsequently, but it, it set me off thinking this isn't a bad idea.
0: John, this is probably a good moment to pause. Yeah. And ask you to tell us what the first track that you'd like to share with the listeners is. I would love to share a track taken from the C90
1: cassette. But obviously, for copyright reasons, and for, <laughs> for the fact that I, would, you know, it was a personal gift to me. It's not an official thing. It's a bootleg. So something like Tupelo Honey would be great. But I would say because that was Van Morrison's Wavelengths tour, promoting the Wavelength album, the title track off that would probably capture the
0: actual moment and the mood quite well. Fantastic. So the first track is Wavelength by Van Morrison. Because of copyright reasons, we can't actually play this music on the podcast itself, but we will have a playlist available on the Queen's Hall website and with the information that accompanies this podcast on all platforms that you will find it. Wow! Tell us a bit more about that track, John.
1: I wouldn't say Wavelength was my favourite Van Morrison album, <laughs> <laughs> but it was of that moment when it was the first time I'd seen him. I certainly liked the album at the time. I'd been out and bought it in advancing out the gig, so I started to get to know the songs. And just to see Van Morrison live on stage was just a pleasure for me. I'd had tickets about five years before for the fourth row in mode and Great, this is going to be wonderful. And then, sure enough, Sam Morrison got laryngitis, the gig was cancelled, the tour <laughs> rescheduled, and I got a refund on the tickets, but obviously I'd rather have seen him. And, you know, I know he's a grumpy old codger, but then so am I. <laughs> 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 you know, grumpy old man and all that. And When I actually um, had this experience of going down to the getting invited down to the dressing room, they were saying, oh, you know, they put the house lights up just when we were coming back upstairs to do a third encore. I thought, oh, what a shame, you know. Mm. But Van, Van Morrison had his own dressing room, so I was just in with the band. You know, I didn't actually get to meet it, meet the man himself. But I did sort of harbour this hope that once I'd sent the prince off to... John Altman, the sax player, he might have shown them to Van, and if he was doing a new live album, he might have said, "Oh, you've got a really good moody picture of me playing <laughs> harmonica. I'd like that on the live album." But when you're twenty three, twenty 25, whatever, you know, that's dream on kind of thing. Wow. Of course, it didn't
0: happen. What do you think? Yeah, uh, what do you think he was doing in that dressing room all on his own, catching up on his reading, or
1: I have no idea. He might not have been on his own. He just had his own dressing room.
0: Yeah. I just want to imagine him knitting or something like that, while he's getting ready for his (laughs) gig. That Morrison knitting? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) He
1: didn't didn't wear scarves on stage, so um, I don't Uh, know about that. But who knows? He might. I mean, hadn't invented Sudoku then, and he couldn't have been scrolling (laughs) through his mobile phone. So, who knows? He might have been writing his next masterpiece.
0: Absolutely. So, so that's how you got started. Mm. So, what, what, what happened next?
1: Um the next gig that I had tickets for that Dave Brett very kindly sorted me out with a photo pass for was um Graeme Parker and rumor again mm-hmm. at Derby Assembly Rooms, which is just down the road from where I lived in Nottingham, so not bother. And um again, I like Graeme Parker. I'd I'd seen I'd bought his records, I'd seen him playing at a, a nightclub called Barbarella's in Birmingham the year before when he'd had a horn section and he was doing the real R&B soul stuff that um, probably launched his career in a mixture of kind of what they used to call pub rock and but with a real R&B inflection. And he was playing at the assembly rooms. I'd got the tickets, I'd got the photo pass, and I went along. And I think, looking back at the Van Morrison film, when I've gone... Back over the, the negative since I probably got, you know, three decent shots out of 36. Whereas when I got the Graham Parker pictures back, I started to think I've I'm I'm starting to get the hang of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I got a couple that I thought, yeah, they they're good, and they're in the exhibition. And they're the first ones I got. Where When I looked at the prints, I thought, this is the kind of thing I was hoping to get. I wouldn't say I was a a Kevin Cummins or a a Penny Smith or whatever, but I could see that it wasn't impossible for me to get some stuff that, to me, looked pretty good. Yeah. Um, And I can't just... Remembering that gig, it's really strange. The the musical thing that comes back to me is Dire Straits, "Sultans of Swing," because before the gig, obviously, as in many gigs, they're they're playing music over the PA, and I was sitting down the front at Derby Assembly Rooms, feeling quite pleased with myself because I I was sitting with my back to the stage, waiting for the band to come on, and you know, sitting there with my camera and feeling quite smug. And they put Sultans of Swing on over the PA, and I was just below the PA on the speaker stack on one side of the stage, and um, that was new then. And I think you know everybody my age has heard Sultans of Swing ten million times, and I still like it. But every time I hear it, my mind goes back to that Graham Parker gig because it was—I think I'd heard it maybe twice on the radio before then. And then to suddenly hear it full volume coming through a massive speaker stack six feet away, I just closed my eyes and thought, yes, I like this. You can listen to D- Straits and then take photos of uh, Graham Parker. So, Graham Parker was, was my second one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and also is my second choice of music, I suppose, that would relate to the photos.
0: Mm-hmm. So which which Graham Parker track have we got for our listeners today? It's Hey Lord Don't Ask Me Questions, which
1: was a big single that year. And it's a live version from an album that I picked up on CD oh in the last five or five or six years, just browsing the racks and found Graham Parker live in San Francisco, nineteen seventy-nine. So it's, again, contemporaneous with the gig at which I was
0: merrily clicking away and thinking, will these come out? Fantastic. Well, uh, podcast listeners, I guess you understand how this works now. Pause the podcast and have a listen to this track in the playlist. What a fantastic track. Tell us a bit more about it, John. Well,
1: it was the big hit single, you know, that was the one that got Graham Parker and Rumour on top of the pops and so on. So from it was kind of an anthemic song, I guess, of of that spring, summer. Uh, It was on the radio all the time. But he never really, really sort of capitalised on that. He made some good albums, about 1982 made an album called The Up Escalator Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on which there's a track where he's duetting with Bruce Springsteen or Bruce Springsteen's duetting with him. And years and years later, probably in the last sort of 15 years, I caught a late-night music documentary on, on TV which was about Graham Parker and Rumour. I think it was stimulated by the fact they'd sort of got back together and got on the road. Yeah. And um, in in amongst the talking heads on this documentary was Bruce Springsteen, who said something along the lines of, um, yeah, I was really aware of Graham Parker, because when he started to get his stuff played on the radio in the States, I was thinking, hey, this guy, you know, new kid on the block, this is serious, you know, he's he's seriously Mm -hmm. good. And as a result of all of that, he, he... to dig guest vocals on, on a track on the up escalator which is you know a really good song but he never quite made it as a, as a headlining act sort of thing which is a shame because I, I think it was a very good band and
0: mm-hmm. he
1: had two lead guitarists Brinsley Schwartz and Martin Belmont both mm-hmm. of whom are really really good guitarists and Brinsley mm-hmm. Schwartz has been around the block with lots of pub rock bands in fact he had his own band called Brinsley Schwartz amazingly enough uh, who were, were pretty good and within Brinsley Schwartz there was Nick Lowe who went on to be pretty famous and so on around the late 70s early 80s so the, the whole Graham Parker thing was he wasn't a major player but he was one of those people who had a couple of one big hit and in terms mm-hmm. of chart success and a couple of minor ones and he's still going or at mm-hmm. least he was seven or eight years ago, because I saw Graham Parker and Rumor at Whitley Bay Playhouse. Oh, wow. And it was great. He was still bouncy, enthusiastic, pugnacious. I think I might have seen him at O2 Academy as well. Yes, I did. And Brinsley Schwartz
0: still playing guitar. And Well, you couldn't be anything other than a musician with a name like Brinsley Schwartz, really. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's a fantastic name yeah. I always thought he should be a chemist, you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brinsley Schwartz pharmacist you know <laughs> <who> just... <laughs> so should we move on? what happened yep. next after this? I occasionally
1: picked up photo passes so I got to go take my camera along to things like the police interestingly mm-hmm. uh because that was before they were mega. Mm-hmm. I think I saw the police in September 79 at Birmingham Odeon
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they were just becoming big because their first ever appearance on Top of the Pops, I learned the other day, watching Top of the Pops <laughs> reruns on the telly, mm-hmm. uh, it was April 1979 when Roxanne was sort of performed on top of the pop, so within six months I got to see him at Derby Assembly Rooms again, and it's a small venue. And obviously they went on to great things after that. But I managed to, sort of by circumstance, just luckily, to catch them before they got big, but in a decent-sized yeah. hall. So they weren't playing a pub with 10 people there. They were playing a proper hall, but it was before they got on to be mega.
0: Is that when Sting was still in his uh, uh, jumpsuit era? Yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: nice. <laughs> Ooh, how cool was that? Uh, <laughs> it probably was then, you
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So on to your next track, John. What's your next track for for the listeners?
1: The next track Selector, Too Much Pressure.
0: So Marvellous. after the police
1: and that, uh, I took my camera along to things like the Crusaders down at Birmingham Odeon, and, and that was obviously a totally different genre, getting into jazz, but I've got a lot of time for the Crusaders. And then in the following spring, um, the selector were on at um, Derby Kings Hall, which was the swimming baths boarded over. And it was all standing and obviously there was kind of a crush down the front and I'd got my camera and thought uh, I don't want to be trying to take pictures in amongst the mosh mosh pit hadn't been invented but the crush down the middle of the stage but it being the swimming paths they got sort of raised daises around the side you know, steps that you could just sit on and watch so uh, I took myself up there and got some shots and I could also get so I was semi-behind the stage, so I was experimenting with that, really. And mm-hmm. um, got one or two interesting pictures from effectively the side of the stage or behind the stage. So I got some stuff, but it was all very distant, and now is all very grainy, as any listener who comes to see the exhibition will see. I've got a, a shot of... um selector pauline black and gaps hendrix and really really giving it some really getting into the music there's so much passion so much commitment in what they it's they're such doing. a
0: good shot it's uh, i think it's that's one of my favorite grainy. shots
1: from, yeah. from the purest photographic point of view you say that's a really grainy shot but it was shot with a long lens crop out the two of them from the center and mm. you get what i think's one of my favorite images in the whole collection me but, too It's not
0: necessarily what the technical purist would like. Uh, Let's not worry about them. Well, no. Because the thing is about that shot is it just is so authentic. It really captures that whole movement and that era in that shot, I feel. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely biased because, listeners, you can't see this, but I'm sitting here in a two-tone scarf, so I'm obviously... (laughs) Slightly biased. Some people might think it's Northumbrian tartan, but for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to claim it's uh, two tone. You could you
1: could repurpose <laughs> it as a two tone star.
0: Yeah. So I'm I'm obviously very biased. I'm a big fan of the selector, but it's you you have to come and see this show for this shot. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: And they're a totally genuine band. I mean, they really are. I know Pauline done Other things she's done: acting, writing. Uh, I think she's written plays and stuff. She's mm-hmm. she's just all round yeah. star and and good egg. Because yeah. I think about twenty fourteen fifteen, they were on at the O two Academy in Newcastle, and they were on in the little upstairs room rather than the main hall, and um, they were just terrific. They were just so switched on, so such good value they just really really get into it every time they're really genuine and in advance of that i'd i'd been doing some scanning of of some of my old photos and i got my ticket for Selector. um in advance sent them via the website just a couple of the shots and said do do you remember 1980 (laughs) you know 34 years ago whatever it was 35 years ago And I got a personal email back from Pauline Black saying, Oh, yeah, they're really nice. Gaps and I will be on the merch stall after the gig, come and have a chat. So I went and had a chat. And I never know what to say to anybody, sort of famous or talented or whatever. But they were really nice, really genuine. And I was saying, you seem to be having a good time there. And they said, Oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's great. You know, we just love performing. That's why we do it. That's why we still track around. And they're still around in 2023. And I have my ticket for the Boiler House in Newcastle
0: on April the 14th. Oh. And I'm looking forward to that so much. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Fantastic. So the song you've selected is Too Much Pressure. Oh, that is is such a fantastic track. It has to be in my top ten favourite tracks of all time. Wow. Okay, so uh, what next, John? What next? Well, I lived in Nottingham, and
1: there was, and still is, the Theatre Royal in Nottingham. And in the summer of 1980, uh, it was announced that there was going to be a series of gigs during August when... The theatre basically shut down, theatre empty. They weren't putting any plays or other productions on. And a TV company from that London had booked out the theatre, booked in a load of bands, and was filming them for TV. And I think what pretty much the first of these bands was Squeeze, who I liked. So we bought tickets and went along to see Squeeze. And you've got the, the theatre, which obviously is of the same age as the Theatre Royal in Newcastle, same style, same beautiful old Victorian building. And you've got TV cameras in there and a TV crew filming a gig, which was quite interesting because I I didn't recall that I'd been to a, a gig where anybody was actually making a production of it before. But one thing I noticed was that they didn't have a stills photographer. So... Again, on the shy bairns getting sweeties principle, I just went to the library in my lunch hour or whatever. Had to delve in the pre internet days when you couldn't just look things up. Had to delve in the London phone book and found a production company. and gave him a ring and said, You haven't got a still photographer. And they went, Oh, that's the point. Hmm. And they said, Oh, well, come and meet us next time we're up and we'll have a chat, and we had a chat, and I showed them some of my Van Morrison, Graham Parker, selector, uh, average white band, um, and somebody else, police pictures, and said, this is the kind of thing I do, and they went, right, we'll pay you, and it wasn't a vast amount, but it, it was quite a lot at the time, I suppose, you know, so 20, 25 quid or something, if you produce this one, Roll a black and white film and contact set. You keep the negatives, they're yours. You give us contact set. We say what prints we want, you give us the prints. And it's like that was the deal. And they said, if you, you know, provided you give us a black and white film, if you want to carry on and take more uh, and take colour and what have you, um, fine, you know, you, you can stay all night. You don't have to disappear after three songs or anything. That was great. So I, I sort of set off, having blagged my way in to be the official stills photographer for
0: mm-hmm.
1: the um, Rock Stage series, which later went out on telly in the middle of the night in various <laughs> ITV regions with these... 25, 30-minute programme. I suppose they were about a half hour on the TV but with an advert break in the middle. So the gigs were fairly short and they tended to put two bands on a night and film two bands, get half an hour's worth of footage and then kick them off. And I had half an hour snapping away, which was great, except I had... um, My camera was a very, very much budget SLR, and my longer lens was a very, very much budget price long lens, and it kind of shows in the photos. And you know, so SLR V sort of thing. That was a good learning experience because there are a load of bands, some of whom I liked and some of whom I wasn't bothered about. But I had to take photos of them, and some of them had a, a very good an intense light show, and some of them, like Ultravox, just had, seemed to have a bunch of fluorescent tubes welded sort of <laughs> strapped to the uh, the legs of the keyboards, thinking, <laughs> I can't get a picture of Ultravox because there's not enough light. And again, going back to the, the overall
0: theme of o- available light, that was a really valuable lesson. For the photography and film nerds out there, what, would, what were your tricks for capturing these shots in, in low-light conditions? What were you doing? What was I doing? I was trying to stay very, very still so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and hold the camera as I pressed the shutter, Press the shutter extremely carefully mm-hmm. so you don't get any camera shake to exacerbate the problem. And for, for people who aren't sort of photographic nerds, When you want to take a picture and there's not much light, you have to open the lens up as wide as it will go to allow the maximum amount of light in, and you have to slow down the shutter speed. So instead of the shutter opening for only a 250th of a second, it might be a 50th of a second. And that doesn't sound a lot of difference, but if somebody's on stage moving, hell of a difference in the end product you get blurry stuff and if you set your your shutter speed to something faster that's going to freeze the movement it's completely dark so my (laughs) i became very aware of things like camera shake and um, shutter speed and I also figured that the way to get anything was to kind of watch the performers' movements and wait until they were not flailing their arms about or leaping up and down. (laughs) And you get less dynamic and and less... A a picture that has less impact, less dramatic impact. You get something fairly staid or not quite portrait level but, um, you know, it, it can be very still but if you kind of watch I think one of the uh, the images that, that's in the exhibition is one of Mejeure so I did manage to get something out of Ultravox that was okay but that was a case of waiting until I'd got just him in the frame getting zoomed in as close as I could with using the, the zoom lens so that Whatever light there was it was reflecting off his shirt. Unfortunately had a very fortunately he had a white shirt on, so that was great. And waiting until he was kind of looking like he was going to stay in that particular posture for half a second and then quick click. and yes, it's a very sort of grainy image and, and so on, but it, That's it a great it's image. Recognizably mid you're doing a bit of emoting
0: in <laughs> way into the microphone. Nice. Fantastic. So let's go on to the next track.
1: Next track is, I think, the first one I went to in that series, The Average White Band. And it's a live version of Atlantic Avenue, which was a kind of big chart success for them in, what, 1979? And in the past two years... I discovered that, uh, I think it was Demon Records had put out a whole series of packages of a DVD and c- audio CD of various artists in concert. And within this series, they've got some of the original performances that I was taking photos at. Oh, amazing. And so I have uh, I've bought dutifully bought Average White Band, Selector, and Hazel O'Connor. Watching the DVDs when I bought them a couple of years back um, was the first time I'd seen any of those performances on screen. I'd been there. Uh, back in 1980, I, you know, the domestic video recorder was not a thing. And if you had to get up for work from the, in, in the morning, you didn't stay up till two o'clock watching central TV <laughs> to see <laughs> half-hour performance. So it was great to see those. And... Um, the Atlantic Avenue live version um, um, that I've chosen is actually from the very
0: performance that I was taking photos of. So listeners, go to the next track in the playlist, Average White Band. Okay, John, so we're at the point where you have been rubbing shoulders with squeeze and starting to get it. A name for yourself a bit, would you say, as, as somebody who's a gig photographer by this point? No, I don't think no. so. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: I don't think I ever got to that stage. No, I was still very much trying it out and seeing what I could do. And I had, well, I, I went from having other jobs or being on the dole or working on. Land Power Services Commission-funded job creation schemes all through sort of 1980-81. I was sort of thrashing about. I mean, my life was fairly chaotic then, for mostly self-inflicted reasons, like jacking in a pretty good job because I really decided that uh, being a graduate and graduate entrant tax inspector was not good for me and was not good for the Inland Revenue. You know, it, it was. <laughs> I had three years of that and drove me batty. So I I quit, but I didn't have a, a plan. And I think also my first marriage finished at that point, And I think my first wife and I both quit at the same time from that. So it was very, very chaotic and um, not stable. And uh, I didn't have an income from the photography. I had a limited amount of income, but I... Ploughed that back into bigger and better kit or whatever. So um, it was all a bit chaotic. There wasn't a a game plan. There wasn't a career plan or anything like that. I was trying to find out if I could get um, get somewhere with it. I did actually write to Penny Smith, a uh, you know much revered NME photographer. Mm-hmm. And just asked her if she could give me any advice. And and I I think somewhere I've still got the letter she sent back. She sent me a really nice letter back. And she said, timing's the main thing. If you want to get your pictures in the music press, you've got to have them on the picture editor's desk the day after you've taken them.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And that was very good advice. And I think I'd sent her some things. And she said, yeah, you know, you've got, got the general idea. What you've got to do is professionalise this and, and get onto the photo editors and be putting packets of envelopes full of prints on their desk when they rock up in the morning before everybody else. Before everybody else does, and I couldn't find a way of doing that. You know, I, I didn't see how I could achieve that. Well, you weren't living in London where you at the time. That's right. You live in Nottingham. It's an hour and three quarters on the train, and if you've got a job. Even if it's not a a brilliant job, you can't be sort of going down to London on the train and getting back at 11 o'clock or whatever.
0: Sounds like a lot of pressure. Almost too much pressure. (laughs) Too
1: much pressure. (laughs) pressure has got to stop.
0: (laughs) Who's the next track by, John? The next track
1: is from Joe Jackson. What a man. He's great. Um, he, again, was one of the... Like Graham Parker was one of the sort of... Well, I always think of as the acceptable face of New Wave. You know, they were more respectable than the punks who were a bit over the top. But the uh, people like Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, the Ian Jury all had a little bit more kind of, um, I don't know, respectability or whatever. But they had the punk sensibility and... They did a lot of picking up on, particularly reggae, um, as a, as an influence, and something they wove into the music. And they made I thought they made exciting music. And and Joe Jackson was great. I mean, he was of that sort of new wave, not outrageous, but but sort of challenging mentality. I always remember reading around. 1982 three time reading a, an in-depth interview in NME with Joe Jackson where he said uh, I'm not one of these people who's going to end up going off to America and playing noodley jazz for the rest of my life and oh what has he done he went off to America <laughs> and played noodley jazz but hey you know when we're 25 we all think we're going to be young forever and not change and so on. So, But the later music he, he made, I, I, I certainly remember seeing him more than once um, in Nottingham in the later 80s when he'd got into much more kind of jazzy era, but, you know, quite sophisticated kind of music. Like uh, he had a, a track people from the late 80s might remember, uh, Stepping Out. Yeah. And the album, that was, and that was great, I liked that, and i, I, liked, I always enjoyed going to see him again. And we did go and see him at the Sage a few years ago, about ten years ago maybe, and uh, you know, he came back and played some of the old stuff in a different style, but with a little bit of attitude. And he's a very good musician, he's a very good p- piano player, and he wrote some great songs and he delivered them brilliantly. And he had uh, a great backing band. Graham the bass player, was was great. And the guitarist, Gary Sanford, was one of these kind of very, very active guitarists in terms of he was performing as well as playing, you know. I I went to see Joe Jackson sometime, 1980-ish, somewhere down in Coventry. And I always remember the... uh, In the song "I'm the Man," he's talking about the the cynicism of commerce and you know the the people who make money out of selling trends basically to young people, and it's all about kung fu skateboards. All the lyrics are about that, and I I just happened to be watching Gary Sanford when um, the song was on, and as well as playing very sort of choppy, aggressive guitar. He was sort of miming kung fu and skateboarding while playing his guitar. Oh, that's cool. He's he's a good guy, yeah. So they have Attitude, and um, again, I'm the man. Great studio track, but I've sort of picked out from a, a, a double live album that Joe Jackson put out back end of the 80s that I've got, a, a live version of Uh, I'm the Man from 1980, which is kind of a little bit rough and ready, but hey, that's what live music should be about. Not as polished as the studio version, but live. And because of the context in which we're talking about all this, I think a a slightly rough and ready live version is kind of much more appropriate than the polished studio thing.
0: Absolutely. Let's have a listen. Fantastic. So what was next then, John? What happened next? What happened
1: next? Well, we got into 1981 and I didn't actively pursue the photography after the the 1980 set of gigs kind of finished. I think I I took some pictures of the blues band at um, the Royal Albert Hall or the Albert Hall in Nottingham. Uh, Paul Jones, who's still like you know, does radio shows and stuff, had been in Manfred Mann, various other sort of um blues luminaries were had a thing called the blues band and that was great, took some photos of that and then kind of put it on the back burner because my life was needed some attention the rest of my life. But in nineteen eighty one, uh the production company who had done the TV shows and had Paid me to do the stills for them, booked the Theatre Royal in Nottingham out again for August and put on a load of bands and um, got in touch with me and said, would you like to be a stills photographer? So I went, oh, all right then. And I got into another bunch of shows that um, were really good, some of them. Um, And in the meantime... My wife, then my girlfriend or partner, whatever, had uh, got a Pentax ME Super, which was a cut above the Praktika I'd, I'd got. It was still not a pro camera. And she sort of said I could use that for these shows. I bought a, a little Hanimex 28 to 80 millimeter zoom lens, a short lens, but it gives you a wide angle 28mm wide angle so you could get the whole of the stage in instead of just individuals and that made a hell of a difference and I also realised that I needed to I think when I got the first check through from the the TV production company I think I thought I needed motor drive so I got a bolt on motor drive to wind the film for me uh, which meant you could get if there was some action on the stage, you could just hold the shutter down and it would go ka-ching, ching ching and take three or four photos in a very short space of time. And so that all improved the quality of the pictures. I think the first of that series was Sad Café and I couldn't go and I missed Sad Café for whatever reason. But the rest of the series I covered uh, with my camera and there was some very good stuff in that. And I got better results in 1981 than I got in 1980. Better kit, a bit more experience. Looking back at what I'd done and thinking mm, I could do that better. How do I do that better? And I was uh, I processed my own films in a dark room I had set up at home. And of course, part of the learning curve. The Joe Jackson concert, I. Uh, the previous year, I'd um, I'd managed to um, foul up developing the film. So I ended Ouch. up with a whole strip of film that, you know, it was my fault. I'd done it wrong. I'd fouled up on the, the developing. And I think I ended up with sort of one frame where there was anything visible. It was awful. So I got a little bit slicker at developing the films, and I had my own enlarger so I could print my own photographs from the negatives so that I was actually uh, capable of doing black and white stuff myself. Colour film requires more uh, Mm -hmm. sensitivity to the temperature of the fluids you're using, the the solutions you're using to develop and, and fix the film. So I always took them to a lab in Nottingham. So it was kind of get down the lab, drop the films off, and then a day or two later go and pick them up, take them away. And that was the colour transparencies, the prints I did myself. So, um, you know, I was learning the technical side of it, the actual developing and printing, so that I had 10 by 8 black and white prints of what I did. And that, that was interesting and useful anyway. So that particular series, um, there were bands I wanted to see, bands I didn't really want to see, bands I hadn't heard of, and that was the nature of the, the TV thing. And of course in the background, because you got to know the crew a bit, the camera crew and the production crew, they were always... Kind of rumours floating around, like oh, next week we're trying to get they're trying to get uh, Thin Lizzy on. It's like oh, good Thin Lizzy, that'd be interesting. And from the visual point of view, Phil it well, very photogenic, charismatic kind of figure. You think oh, if we get get them, that'd be great. It's, I did hear talk about you too, uh, and that was nineteen eighty one. Or perhaps it might have been the year before. At one point, you two were banded about, but that was before they were big. You know, that was when they were just um, starting to come through, and that would have been entertaining and interesting as well. But those didn't transpire. But you never knew who you're going to see. Sometimes, as, as the, if you like, the, the under the under bill. Uh, There was a band called Private Lives who were very good. Nobody ever heard of them again. And there was one-hit <laughs> one wonders like Martha um, and the Muffins, Blaine Lovitch, Hazel O'Connor, um, Huang Chung, who then became... No, Wang Chung, who then became Huang Chung. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and they were a bit one-hit wonder as well. But there were some bands that you thought, oh, these are all right. But if the less I like the band in terms of the music the, the more pictures. I concentrate on getting a good image. yeah. <laughs> Whereas bands that looked like the Q-Tips and Dexy's Midnight Runners, it was like, I would really like not to have to produce anything out of this. I'd like to just enjoy the gig. So you got that kind of trade-off.
0: Interesting. Speaking of the Q-Tips, what's your next track, John? Oh, it's the
1: Q-Tips. Fancy that. What a coincidence. Again, a live version from the... Uh, album that was recorded and then released in about 1982 of the concert that I was at. I like the Q-tips. I really do like the Q-tips. I always did. I like the studio album, but seeing them live, I just thought, these are a great live band. Uh, And so the, the track itself is from the live album. It's High Fidelity.
0: Wow, so can you tell us any more about the Q-Tips, John? Did you get to meet them?
1: Yeah, they were the, they were there on the Saturday night, and on the Sunday night, the same weekend, Dexys Midnight Runners were playing, and the, the Q-Tips were desperate to see Dexys Midnight Runners. About, and they're quite a big band, there's uh, seven or eight of them. I think four of them blagged tickets for or backstage passes to come the next night. And they sort of collared me in the backstage area afterwards and said, oh, have you got any good photos? And it's like, well, I don't know till I've developed them, guys. And they said, Oh, you know, could you sort us out some copies sometime? I said, Yeah, yeah. And they said, We're coming back tomorrow to see Dexies. It's like, right. So I spent I developed the film on the Saturday night when I got in, in my little dark room at home and spent the Sunday doing prints and took a box of 8B10s down, met four of the Q-tips in the bar uh, before the Dexys gig, and um, said, here you are, guys, what do you think of these? And they went, oh, these are great. They loved them. And off they went after the gig. They enjoyed the gig and said, thanks for the prints, and off we go. And the kind of payoff for that was that... um, couple of months later the production company rang me up one evening and said we've had q-tips management on to us would you be interested in being their tour photographer for an upcoming tour and i went yeah of course i would because i thought this is the big break kind of thing i'm going to be the q-tips tour photographer possibly and I said, "When? when's this? And they said, oh, it starts in early November and goes on until just before Christmas. And at the time, back in the real world, away from fantasies of being a, a rock photographer, um, I had been on the dole up until July time, August time, and... I'd signed up for a computer programming training course where you got the dole and a little bit more from the whatever the um, relevant government, government department was called at the time, DHSS. And um, <laughs> basically, I was committed to doing that, but having had a couple of years of chaos in my Certainly in my work existence, I was kind of committed to finish this uh, training course Mm -hmm. uh, to be a computer programmer, and we were supporting my wife's mother, who recently been widowed, was on her own, from 180 miles away. So life was complicated enough without ditching the course, thereby losing the... uh, the possibility of ever getting the doll again, um, and hopping in a minibus, going thrashing up and down the motorway network of Britain with a band that I really liked, and who, on my sort of limited acquaintance, were really nice guys—the sort of people you could get on with—they were really down to earth and enthusiastic about what they did. That really showed in the live show. So. That was, if you like, the, the sliding doors moment. Uh, did I accept the offer or pursue the offer of being the official photographer for the Q-Tips tour winter 1981? Or did I try and get my life at least stable, stick with the computer course going into IT? Which I... I took the the latter option, and I've never really regretted that, I must say, Um, because I could have gone on tour with the Q-tips and got to Christmas and been like, ah, what do I do next? Where's the money coming from? Uh, I I, I could have been nowhere. On the other hand, uh, with the glass half full scenario, I could have been the Q-tips tour photographer, they could have, I don't know, produced some of my work or shown it to some of their mates in other bands who'd gone, oh, well, come and be our photographer. And then within a couple of years, Paul Young, lead singer of the Q-Tips, started to become Paul Young world megastar. So in that alternate reality, the sliding doors alternate reality, I could have got, been invited to be Paul Young's official tour photographer, touring the world I could have spent a lot of money on nice professional level kit and I could have been taking the album covers and I could have gone on to have you know been a world famous rock photographer had I done so and swanned off on tour for weeks or months on end By the time I got back, I'd have found my stuff on the street and the the locks changed because my missus would not have liked that at all. And I I wouldn't wouldn't have blamed her if that had gone that way. So it was a choice between having a a, a steady-ish life and taking a massive punt. And I didn't take the massive punt. And I don't regret that.
0: You could have done that and you could have been successful and touring with lots of bands but not being happy doing that yeah, as well success absolutely. doesn't always equate with happiness does it so. no no but the world of
1: rock's kind of fascinating from the outside but i should imagine
0: sitting for hours on a tour bus every day does not appeal yeah one of the benefits is we have got an amazing photograph of paul young in this exhibition do you like it um, yeah do you <laughs> not like it i love it yeah well, there you go see so uh listeners get yourselves in after the 4th of February. Ah, you know, yeah, look at, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, look and he's, still, he's
1: still doing things musical as well, which is great. Yeah. Cause he seemed a really tough, down-to-earth nice guy. And he's the last I saw of him or heard of him, he had a band together called Los Pacaminos, which is a sort of Tex-Mex ensemble. And they were on at stage 2 not long before the COVID pandemic hit. And uh, we went to see them there and they were great because it's just a bunch of guys playing the music they love. And he was talking in the patter, you know, the in-between songs, he was talking about liking Tex-Mex music and Ray Cuda was one of his heroes. And when Ray Cuda played with Flaco Jimenez, the, the Mexican um, accordion player, that that sort of music was what got them forming that particular band so, um, Rikuda's somebody I've really liked their music for fifty years, you know. So I, I was pleased that uh, he had that sort of influence as well as the R and B soul influence that
0: drove the Q-tips. Fantastic! But well, before we go any further with Rikuda, what's your next track, John? Well, s- slight change of gear and slight
1: change of um, musical. musical tone would be Susie and the Banshees track called Spellbound from the Juju album and and here I, I you know, in the interests of full disclosure, I was never a, a particularly a Susie and the Banshees fan I didn't quite get what they were doing, that says more about me than it does about them I know they've got a big following a loyal following and they make good music, it's just not music that hooks me in, but I have to say, Susie and the Banshees of, of the whole of that second series of, of concerts in Nottingham, Susie and the Banshees were just, wow. I mean, yeah. she she is very sort of charismatic stage personality, very striking looking, incredibly well presented. Mm. And her whole stage persona and, and the way she moves and looks at, looks at the audience or what interacts with the audience brilliant and they had a fantastic light show and the sound system was spot on i remember thinking after that show oh these are good yeah Yeah. these are so good
0: yeah um i I love them i absolutely love them yeah
1: yeah i mean it's it's just what floats your boat musically isn't it and I, i could never quite get it so When we were first talking about this um, exhibition as a a possibility and about the possibility of incorporating some sort of soundtrack into the whole offering, I actually just went down to HMV and browsed the racks and found the Susie album that um, came out in 1981. And I bought it and brought it home and listened to it. I thought, yeah, but that track's spellbound. Yeah, I, I listen to that quite a lot. It's it's got something.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was I was kind of when you sent some of the initial photographs through for this, and I was looking at them on my computer at home. My wife saw the Susie pictures over my shoulder, and she was just like, "That is amazing!" Because she was a big goth, so she oh, got right, it immediately. Yeah. And some of the um, some of the Susie pictures we have got in this exhibition are just stunning as well. You've got to come and have a look at those. So let's have a listen. Spellbound by Susan the Banshees. Moving on, so you decided not to tour with the Q-tips. Did you? Was that the point at which you kind of started wrapping up the um, the gig photography then, John, or did you do a few more?
1: Pretty much. Um, I think the last of the, uh, the TV ones that uh, I went to did would be Dexies and the Beat which were two bands that I always loved and again, picked out a couple
0: of tracks from those two So what's what's your next track then, John?
1: Plan B, Dexies Midnight Runners First few bars of that are just like yeah, that's it That's what Dexies are about sheer attack and in your face I love the brass sounds, and they just—they were just a cracking
0: band. Brilliant! So let's have a listen. So, John, you've got this amazing archive, which I guess a lot of people who worked in the IT industry don't have. <laughs> 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 so, you've got this archive, and we can really proudly show this now, can't we? we- been working together to get the prints ready Mm -hmm. Um, and it opens uh, to the public on the 4th of February how excited are you about sharing this work? Yeah I am Um, it came
1: about because after retiring I started scanning I bought a laptop and a, a proper scanner or a better quality scanner than I had before Went mm-hmm. through them all, and again, the Q-tips comes into it. Um, one week I'd been scanning the photos I'd taken of the Q-tips in 1981, and it just happened that that particular week was the week where we had to get to see Paul Young's Los Pacaminos at the Sage. Right. And my wife and I were sitting there having a meal in the bistro at the Sage beforehand saying, oh, that's coincidence, and talking about Paul Young. And then... Before the gig started, we were wandering around the balconies at the uh, Sage, like you do, and they'd got a display of their house photographer's photos from the Americana um, Mm. series that they had. And we'd look at them and say, oh, that's good, that's good, blah, 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 blah. And my wife actually said to me, you know, you should get some of yours stuck on a wall somewhere, because some of them are quite good, and I thought, hang on a minute, I'm not used to that level of, of... praise from my from <laughs> wife. You know, she said, oh, you doing those photos again? Yeah, I'm afraid I am, you know. And I said, why don't you try? And I, I sort of said, eh, oh, nah, no, nobody want to put these up. And I said, nah, not going to do that. Nah, it's just for my own type of entertainment and to do decluttering and get rid of boxes and slides and just have things digital. So, um, I see, it just nagged away at my head for a couple of days, a few days, and I just idly went on the Queen's Hall website and thought, mm, community arts, well, I'm sort of, I've lived in Hexon 20 years, I must count as part of the community, possibly. Uh, art, possibly. And I just emailed Casey Taylor, the artistic director, and said, I've got this bunch of photos, would you be interested? And she... Very positively came back and said, yeah, can discuss it over a coffee. So we met in the the Queen's Hall cafe. I downloaded a load of images to my iPad and sat there and flicked through and said, you know, what I was looking for was, could you possibly think about putting 15, 20 of these on the wall sometime for a couple of weeks? And she, Casey sort of said, oh, no, 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 no. What we want to do is get a proper competent producer a a very able producer that's you Dominic oh thank you very much (laughs) get a very able producer in that we know and turn this into something really good so yeah I mean that was beyond my I won't say wildest dreams but it was my, my highest aspiration was to get 20 of my photos in gallery one in the Queen's Hall for maybe three weeks and they would have been I would have gotten printed at a local photography shop, get them framed, say, right, stick them on the walls, and that would be it. But what we've ended up with is, is much more than that, and, and you've added enormous amount of value to that. So I'm going to be really excited to see what you've done with the digital images
0: I'm excited to see them on the wall, and believe it or not, listeners, we actually have got Queen's Hall to build an extra wall for this show, so that we could fit as many of these shots in as we could as well, haven't we? So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah. Um, And this recording will be playing in Gallery 2 as well, with with the music. So why not get yourself down and listen to this all again, but with the music? On that uh, subject, what's the next track, John?
1: next track would be the beat. Wine and Grind, Stand Down Margaret. Pretty much the last band that we're on in the 1981 series. Again, a band I, I liked, I respected, like The Selector and so on. They just seemed really good band. They were part of the two-tone movement. And... They gave it 100%. I like the songs and um, the sentiments in Stand Down Margaret are quite close to my heart, let's say, so that's why I chose that track.
0: Yes, the beats, what a marvellous band. Um I have never seen the beat. I've always wanted to. I've never seen them play. Oh, and day. now
1: ranking Roger no longer with us, yeah.
0: sadly. Yeah, that's that's a there's a few a few bands and, and, and performers that I that I have just missed, unfortunately, but mm. I think most of us have, haven't we? Oh, yeah. So that was
1: really the end was deciding to go into IT was, you know, where effectively the poten- any potential for a, a career or whatever in photography sort of kind of bit the dust because not enough hours in the day and you get into doing holidays and social life and things like that. Um, but I did occasionally take my camera along to gigs and... Um, Eddie Grant and Robert Palmer at the um, Royal Centre in Nottingham, and I did actually in what would it be 1983? There I was in my at my desk in um, in uh, County Hall, West Bridgford, Nottingham, programming away, coding the machine, and I got a phone call saying, "Oh, hello, this is Barry Stead, manager of the Theatre Royal," and it's like, "Yeah." And he said, oh, I managed to get your number. Um, would you uh, our regular photographers not available next week, would you be able to cover and do three gigs for us, three shows for us? And I went, yeah, okay, fine, right, you know, because I could I lived ten minutes walk from the Theatre Royal and it was fine. I was on Flexi Time so I could get away in good time, blah blah blah. Um so I ended up going to three gigs that week. One of them was Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Second one was Tom Jones, or Sir Tom Jones to you and me. And the third one was Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. So quite disparate acts. But I trotted along with my cameras and took photos, took the films to the lab, walked from the lab to the stage door of the Theatre Royal and handed over the original transparencies. Because I'm stupid, I never thought to get the lab to do me a duplicate set that I could hang on to. So I never saw the end product. Mm -hmm. So I never know if I got any decent pictures of... Tom oh. Jones, wife mopping his brow with ladies' underwear that had been thrown from the audience or whatever. <laughs> I never knew if I got any pictures of the lovely coconuts behind Kid Creole and whether I bothered taking any pictures of August Darnell himself. Um, pretty much the last of me dabbling and taking camera along to a gig was was um, Rikuda, who's somebody I'd just love his music and have done for you know 50 something years and we had tickets to see him at the city hall in newcastle and i thought there i'll take my camera along there's nothing on the back of the ticket that says no photography allowed i i I'd, i'd seen him before and i saw him i've seen him again in in subsequent years you know somebody i've always tried to get to see uh but that City Hall concert was just great, and I, I shot a roll of film just so I had a a, a sort of um, memento of it, if you like. Mm. And I'm sitting there in row M or whatever of the City Hall next to an aisle, and I got my camera and my long lens, and I took some shots, and some of them are quite nice. And just happily, you, when we were reviewing. Mm-hmm. What material to actually use on the walls of the Queen's Hall? You you liked that one and said, mm-hmm. yeah, "Should we put that there?" Sort of, yeah. Let's have her, let's have Ryle and Peter Cuda on the wall.
0: Excellent, what a- fantastic. So that takes us to our last track, John, and we should end with this track. Yeah,
1: Raya little sister.
0: Again, a live version uh,
1: from the. No Nukes album, which was Musicians United for Safe Energy, 1979, Madison Square Garden, because Mm -hmm. there'd been the uh, Three Mile Island near nuclear disaster around that time. A bunch of musicians like Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, Mm -hmm. um, Crosby, Stills and Nash, all of them, and Rykuda, they just did a fundraiser, and because they were who they were and, and had the clout and the money, they uh, they booked out Madison Square Gardens in New York City for several nights. And so it came out as a triple album. And Ry Kuda was there doing uh, little sister, and it's a good track. It's Very upbeat and nice guitar.
0: That's good. Brilliant. Well, let's let's play out on that song. So, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to seeing your work on the gallery walls. So, for those of you who haven't been listening to me throughout this whole podcast, the one thing you need to remember is that that show opens on the 4th of February at Queen's Hall in Hexham. Thank you, John. And now we've got Raikuda with Little Sister. Thanks, Dominic.